Cancer is an enormously complex issue, which we tend to make progress on when several different disciplines come together to cooperate on a project that's at the interface of different branches of, of science. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Cancer is still one of the leading causes of death worldwide. And here in the U.S., much of the work that goes into cancer research and treatment is conducted by NCI-designated cancer centers, of which there are 71. My guest today is Dr. Roy Jensen. Dr. Jensen is a pathologist, and he's the director of the Cancer Center at the University of Kansas. Today, we'll learn about his work in breast cancer research and about what goes into creating a cancer center. All right, here's Dr. Roy Jensen. In college, you studied biology and chemistry. And I'm curious, at that time, did you always intend to go on to medical school? Well, actually, when I uh, started college, the one thing I knew that I didn't want to do was to go to medical school. My mother was a nurse uh, for a family physician, and I sort of saw his lifestyle and, and uh, saw what he did, and that didn't really interest me a great deal. I was uh, more interested in basketball, so I actually wound up going to a junior college to play basketball because I liked biology and chemistry. I took those classes but I didn't really know what I wanted to major in or do. And, you know, I loved, I, I loved those um, courses. And, you know, it turns out there was a whole lot of pre-meds in those uh, uh, classes. And I just said, well, you know, I'm as, I'm as good as these guys. I might as well, might as well apply to medical school too. And then um, I, I had a, a teacher in, in junior college who was my chemistry teacher. And she was a former med tech who had gone back to school to get her master's degree. Uh, and you can teach in a junior college with a master's degree. Her, her lab experiences were all based off of her clinical chemistry uh, work that she had done uh, in the hospitals uh, around, uh, around there. And so I, I started getting interested in that and, you know, how science applies to to medicine. And, you know, she really introduced me to a whole different side of medicine that I had no, no idea even existed. So that's kind of where I got interested in, in med school. And, and of course the realization that I was not going to be a lottery pick and I had to, had to find a plan B, you know, lottery pick. You're talking about the, the basketball, the kind NBA of the basketball draft, career. Yeah. Okay. Going into medical school. I mean, having this experience, knowing someone who was a med tech, is it, were you looking to go into lab medicine and pathology or did you have other uh, specialties in mind? You know, I uh, probably thought I would be a cardiologist. I had taken uh, an exercise physiology course and I was really fascinated with that. And I was still, you know, fancying myself as somewhat of an athlete. You know, the whole business of, of aerobic fitness and all of that was pretty interesting to me. And so when I started medical school, I assumed I would wind up as a cardiologist. What I think turned me around 
was the path course at Vanderbilt, which was just incredible. You know, that, I, you know, in the second year of medical school, I finally figured out why I was going to medical school, uh, was to study the things that were happening uh, that we were learning about in the in the PATH course. And I, I just thought that was fascinating. And, um, you know, you had heard about all these diseases, and, but you didn't really exactly understand what the uh, pathophysiology was around them. And, and that course, you know, that that was all front and center and it was just, I, I thought it was incredibly interesting. And so that, uh, that got me hooked and the, the teachers in that course were, were just incredible. Uh, there was, uh, it, it was a, it was a fantastic experience. Okay. I've actually heard uh, similar stories to that. Once people start learning about the pathophysiology, that's what hooks them into the field. And, and I think that's important going into then, like pathology residency. I mean, did you ever, did you ever question this decision to go into pathology or did you, once you got into it, you knew that was the right field for you? So at the start of uh, third year medical school, I, you know, I decided that I should get every, give everything a shot. And so I kind of had a little game of, uh, I would measure the time from when I start the rotation until I decided that either that's what I wanted to do or that was not what I wanted to do. Uh, the, the shortest amount of time uh, was when I started on pediatrics. And uh, it, it literally took five minutes uh, for me to figure out that I did not want to do that because uh, right off the bat uh, on that rotation, there was a, a parent raising a fit and causing all kinds of unnecessary drama and it was just like nope that's not what i want to do and so uh, uh pediatrics got ruled out pretty quick and there was nothing that really grabbed me uh during the third year but the my very first rotation of my fourth year was surgical pathology that was just an incredible experience and i loved it and i've, I've never looked back really lasted a lot longer than five minutes i guess then yeah <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Now, you went on to do a fellowship at Vanderbilt with Dr. David Page. And I want to talk about this because I think, well, first of all, it seems like he was a major mentor in your career and kind of shaped at least the, the research part of where your career eventually went. So can we talk about Dr. Page and how do you came to work with him? Yep. So um, I first met David Page uh, when he gave a lecture in, a, in an elective class that I took as a freshman on, uh, on cancer. And, of course, he talked about breast cancer and a lot of the work that he was doing on characterizing uh, premalignant breast disease. And I, I just thought the guy hung the moon. I mean, he, he was absolutely one of the most brilliant people that I've ever encountered you know, when I was sitting there listening to that lecture, it, it was just, you know, it was just one of those wow moments. And then another uh, mentor of, of mine, uh, a guy by the name of George Gray, who was the head of surgical path at, at Vanderbilt and was very heavily involved in the teaching course. He, he kind of steered me towards David and said, you know, this is somebody you really need to uh, get to know if you're interested in pathology. And and you know we just we just clicked 
I really, um, you know, I, I treasured every single moment that I had with that guy because he was he was a horse. There's no question about it. Okay, and uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit later. But was he kind of the main influence in you eventually deciding to focus on breast cancer? Yeah, no, yeah, there's no question about that. You know, one reason that I decided to uh, focus on cancer once I'd gone into pathology was what I found fascinating about it was that, um, you know, it often impacted people that, you know, they didn't do anything to deserve getting cancer or, you know, whatever. And and, and that's especially true for breast cancer. And, and it's a, it's a fascinating spectrum of disease from a biology uh, standpoint. And, um, you know, that's, uh, that was, one reason why I got into uh, uh, doing research on BRCA1 is because, you know, trying to figure out how an inherited gene can can lead someone to uh, develop cancer, I think, is a is a really fascinating biological question and obviously a critically important uh, clinical question as well. All right. Before we get into some of your work in uh, cancer, I want to talk about another mentor again at Vanderbilt. So this was Dr. Harold Moses. Yeah. So how was the chair of uh, uh, anatomy and, and cell biology initially? And Vanderbilt was uh, was an interesting place in that, you know, they, they literally had Nobel Prize winners, you know, walking the hall, but they did not have a, an NCI designated cancer center. Uh, so there was a little bit of dyssynchrony there. And, and what had, had happened, actually, is that, uh, you know, uh, Vanderbilt is a campus that has both an undergraduate and a medical school in one location. And the central university folks, I would say, actively discouraged the medical center campus from getting a cancer center designation. Uh, I was told because they were afraid that if um, if we ever got a cancer center, all the uh, philanthropic interest in town would stop giving money to the English department and they and they'd uh, start giving it to the cancer center. So um, they eventually saw the error of of that approach and and I think also you know there was a lot of money to be had in cancer research and if you wanted to maximize your return there, you pretty much have to be an NCI designated center. So they allowed the med center to go forth and Hal became the first uh, cancer center director. And he just, he did a fantastic job in terms of getting things ready to um, apply to the NCI. And I uh, was lucky enough to be chosen to to help with that uh, effort. And I got to see, you know, firsthand what all went into that. It, it was an incredible learning experience and obviously was uh, directly impacted, you know, me taking uh, this job a, a few years later uh, at Kansas, which is, uh, you know, Kansas City is my hometown. And so the opportunity to, to bring a cancer center uh, to your hometown um, particularly one which the nearest NCI designated cancer center was literally hundreds of miles away. That's a significant uh, issue and uh, was the was a big reason why I came back to do this and, and left Vanderbilt. Uh, Vanderbilt's an incredible 
place. You know, I, I loved my time there, but um, this was this was the opportunity that I felt like uh, I, you know, everything had been pointing towards. So that that's why I made the leap. Okay, I understand that. And then being at Vanderbilt with Dr. Moses, you kind of saw the the entire process of what it was like to start a cancer center yep. and, and maybe some of the difficulties in doing that. No question. Okay. Before we get into that, I want to talk about the, the breast cancer research. Your research work focused on breast cancer and particularly the function of the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. That's correct. And you were part of the team that showed that BRCA1 was a tumor suppressor. And, th and that's an interesting story. Can you tell me about that experience? Sure. So, you know, I, I can remember uh, working with a guy by the name of, of Jeff Holt, who was my one of my main collaborators at Vanderbilt. And, you know, we stayed up until midnight when they released the sequence for BRCA1 on the science uh, website. You know, the clock struck midnight and we and we downloaded the sequence and we started looking at it and trying to figure out what it was. And we, like uh, everybody else on the planet, were just scratching our heads because nothing like this gene had ever been seen. It wasn't clear exactly what its function was. And so uh, that... Um, became a really fascinating uh, research question. Uh, and one of the first things we did was, uh, you know, to clone the gene and then transfect it into cells to see what the impact of that would be. And it turned out that it would, it basically shuts down the proliferation of cells. And so, you know, one of its mechanisms of tumor suppression is to be able to control the, the cell cycle. And we showed that in a, in a paper in, in Nature Genetics. And in a companion paper, we also showed that um, BRCA1 is not just mutated in, in breast cancer. In a significant percentage of breast cancers, it's also very much down-regulated. And so there seemed to be two ways to in inactivate this gene, one of which was a mutation which blocked uh, its, its function, and the other uh, was by diminishing the expression. And actually, uh, decreasing expression was a much more common phenomenon and occurred you know, somewhere between 20 and 30% of the time, depending on the, you know, the cohort of breast cancers that you're that you're looking at and that was a a nature uh, genetics uh, paper uh, as well and it it turns out that that was one of the first molecular characterizations of of triple negative breast cancer and we and we didn't even really use that uh, term uh, at, at the time so much or it was just becoming uh, popular uh, many BRCA1-associated breast cancers are so-called triple negative, where they don't express ER, they don't express BR, and they don't express HER2-NU. And it turns out that many of those have uh, significantly decreased expression of BRCA1. And in work that my lab has been involved in the last 10 years, we've shown that that decreased expression of BRCA1 leads to overexpression of EGFR. 
And EGFR is one of the main drivers of signal transduction in the, in the malignant process in triple negative breast cancers. And it's directly relates to the fact that once you lose BRCA1 function, you stop making a specific microRNA called uh, microRNA-146A. And 146A directly controls the expression of EGFR. So when you lose BRCA1, you lose uh, 146A, and 146A shuts down EGFR expression. And so when you lose it, it uh, the expression goes uh, way, way up. And that's why many triple negative breast cancers have a very high level of expression of, of EGFR driving the malignant process. That's interesting. It must have been really exciting to be kind of at the very beginning of, of all of this. It was fun. And, um, you know, uh, shortly after uh, we got started with our studies, uh, Mary Claire King came and gave a lecture at Vanderbilt, and we started collaborating uh, with her. And that's uh, been a great you know, collaboration uh, over the years, and we've done a lot of things together, and she's become a, a great friend. And, um, you know, of course, the whole the whole field of hereditary breast cancer pretty much owes its uh, origin to, to her and uh, her determination to uh, identify uh, the gene responsible for uh, many uh, hereditary breast cancer and ovarian cancer cases. Another thing about B- BRCA, I mean, we know that mutations in those genes can increase the risk of cancers. I mean, you were just talking about that, and particularly breast and ovarian. Some of your work shows the possibility that overexpression of BRCA1 can provide protection against some tumors. Can you tell me about that? Sure. So the uh, uh, cell transduction stuff was was really the first direct uh, in vitro evidence that BRCA1 is a tumor uh, suppressor. Obviously, that was uh, surmised from from all of the uh, of the clinical work and Mary, and Mary Claire's work. The first direct in vivo evidence that BRCA1 uh, could be a tumor suppressor was when uh, we took a C57 uh, black mouse and overexpressed normal full-length wild-type BRCA1 and showed that when you challenge those mice with a known carcinogen, the incidence of mammary tumors in those mice and other types of tumors as well uh, was significantly diminished. It was very clear that BRCA1 was helping to protect those mice. Now, when you uh, overexpressed mutant forms of BRCA1, then those tumors, the tumor incidence in those mice actually increased. So, you know, suggesting that there was kind of a, a competitive inhibition going on uh, with when you had uh, mutant uh, BRCA1 uh, there uh, besides uh, the, the normal mouse BRCA1. Together, uh, Jeff Holt and I provided some of the first uh, in vitro evidence and the first in vivo evidence that, in fact, uh, BRCA1 was a was a tumor suppressor in addition to all the, the clinical work. Okay, so in, in regards to this sort of research pathway, I mean, is the goal kind of to develop a drug to 
promote overexpression of BRCA1? Or what's what's kind of the goal of this? I, I think, you know, looking at ways to uh, overexpress BRCA1 is, is, is one path. Uh, what what my lab is currently focusing on is the lack of, of microRNA 146A when you lose BRCA1. We're actually looking at trying to introduce uh, 146A uh, into uh, tumors selectively, uh, put it back into tumor cells to block uh, EGFR signaling and EGFR expression. You know, uh, EGFR kinase inhibitors have really never worked very well in uh, breast cancer, and it's because breast cancers typically develop a, a kinase mutation, which abrogates the ability of, of kinase inhibitors to work very well. And so our idea is that if we shut down EGFR expression altogether, then that that blocks that uh, mechanism of, of resistance and um, uh, hopefully would be an effective therapy. So uh, we're, we're working on, you know, developing uh, those uh, agents uh, right now. And that's a, that's a big focus in the lab. Okay. And I imagine it's still pretty early in that process, right? Yes, it is. Yep. Mm-hmm. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Roy Jensen. We'll be right back. Here at the People of Pathology podcast, we're passionate about giving leaders in healthcare and pathology the spotlight. And this is why I'm so excited to tell you about the AGBT Precision Health Conference, which is taking place September 8th through the 10th in San Diego, California. AGBT is bringing together today's global leaders and innovators in genome biology and technology to discuss the future of precision medicine. The agenda includes an impressive number of speakers who are all successful in their own right. These are voices like Angene Music, director of the All of Us Research Program, and Yuan Ashley, director at Stanford University, who are leading conversations at the event. If you're looking to make an impact on genomic science, visit agbt.org to reserve your spot at the AGBT Precision Health Conference today or follow the link in the show notes. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Dr. Roy Jensen on the People of Pathology podcast. All right, now I want to move on to the cancer center there at Kansas. Uh, so you were you instrumental in in creating this cancer center. So I was hired in in two thousand four, okay. and um, you know the job was to build a, uh, an NCI designated cancer center in the Kansas City region. Uh, at the time, Kansas City was the largest metropolitan area in the in the United States, which did not have an NCI designated center. You know, those kinds of statistics are what motivate, um, you know, the civic community to make things happen. And, and we've had incredible support uh, throughout this whole uh, process. In fact, you know, over the last uh, 18 years plus now, we've gotten well over a billion dollars of support from uh, philanthropic and, and governmental and university um, institutional uh, sources 
to make the cancer center happen. And um, uh, it's been a really great team effort, many different uh, groups pulling together. We have some great consortium partners uh, in our effort, both uh, Children's Mercy, uh, and, and which is the main provider of pediatric care um, in, in this region, and the Stowers Institute for Medical Research are both consortium partners and have played a key role in, in helping move uh, our cancer program forward. I'm curious about the NCI designation. So first of all, what does that mean? And then why is that important for a cancer center? So uh, cancer centers in designation from the NCI came out of the National Cancer Act, which was passed in December of 1971. And so that that program is just, uh, you know, a little over 50 years old. And it was a an absolutely transformational event in in terms of the history of, of cancer research. You can look back to that date and the acceleration in knowledge, the improvement in clinical care ha- has been really spectacular uh, since that piece of legislation was was signed into law by, by Richard Nixon. You know, all you have to do is, is realize that in 1971, the five-year survival rate from all types of cancer was about 49%. Wow. And now it's 69%. So we've made a, a, a lot of progress, even in terms of understanding, you know, what cancer is, how it develops, uh, the molecular mechanisms that underlie it. Uh, I think at the, uh, at the start of, uh, of the National Cancer Act, most people thought that uh, cancer was going to be explained by a, a number of, of viruses. And indeed, you know, that's the case for about maybe 8 to 10 percent of cancers. But, you know, the vast majority are, are explained from uh, other types of, of exposures or environmental uh, agents. And of course, now um, and over the next 10 to 15 years, it looks like that um, uh, obesity is going to take over as the number one cause of cancer as people uh, continue to, to stop using tobacco products. Of course, right, right now it's still tobacco. With the uh, decreased level of smoking in society, uh, the hope is that um, uh, it will uh, slowly uh, continue to fade away. Now, as far as the, like, what what are the benefits to the cancer center itself of getting this designation? Well, uh, of course, it is a, a, it's basically an infrastructure grant, which uh, helps okay. fund many of the things that are necessary to do cutting edge research in, in the cancer field. So most of, of the money that goes to an institution when they have a P30 award funds shared resources that allow, you know, access to uh, highly specialized equipment or, say, uh, biospecimens or expertise like uh, biostatistics or bioinformatics, you know, things which individual laboratories have a hard time, you know, maintaining on their own. But uh, when you aggregate a bunch of of researchers together, uh, obviously you can justify having uh, very 
you know, highly specialized laboratories and access to equipment and, and things like that. So uh, it really keeps um, research on the on the cutting edge. And, um, you know, it turns out that cancer is an enormously complex issue, which we tend to make progress on when several different disciplines come together to cooperate on a project that's at the interface of different branches of, of science. So, you know, clinicians, basic scientists, drug development uh, researchers, all of those folks are critically important in coming to the table and helping to move forward the science so that we can develop new therapeutic approaches or new understanding of, of you know, how uh, cancer develops and, and what we can do to prevent it. Okay. That, that makes sense. And it seems like, you know, being a pathologist, being in pathology, like that's kind of the center, you know, of, of that network of all those connected fields. Yeah. And, um, you know, one thing I, I should have mentioned is that, you know, there's not a lot of pathologists who are um, the head of, of cancer centers. And, but, but for me, it is, uh, you know, I can't imagine it any other way because how Moses was a pathologist. Now he, he was not practicing at the time that uh, he was the cancer center director, but uh, he, he trained as a pathologist and then basically his research career was so successful that he stopped actively uh, uh, practicing in the clinical realm and just focused totally on his, on his research career, which was, um, which led to the discovery of uh, TGF beta uh, among other things. And so he was a great uh, inspiration to me in, in a lot of ways. And, and it just seemed you know, with him starting the cancer center at Vanderbilt, it seemed natural that uh, you know a pathologist would be uh, would be cancer center director. But uh, it's not it's not very common. In fact, I only I think there's only three center directors that are currently in the NCI portfolio right now. That's interesting. I, I feel like a pathologist would be the exact person you would want as a director of a cancer center. Well, most commonly, it's uh, it's medical oncologist uh, oh, okay. that fill that role. But um, yeah, I I found it to be incredibly useful because, of course, pathology interacts with you know pretty much the entire range of, of clinicians that um, yeah. that treat cancer: uh, surgeons, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, you know the whole the whole gamut of, of folks, and our uh, and of course our tend to be broadly familiar uh, with a wide variety of different types of, of cancer, often conduct uh, research uh, on their own. You know, the one, you know, sort of uh, issue probably that uh, is a limitation on our skill set is, is we tend not to be the, the folks who are conducting clinical trials. And of course, that's a huge uh, aspect of, of any cancer center. So, uh, you know, my expertise on, on clinical trials is sort of from the outside looking in. But again, you know, how Moses was incredibly uh, helpful in that uh, he had appointed me to the PRMC, which is the group that really does the scientific vetting 
of new clinical trials that are being proposed in the cancer center. So uh, I learned an incredible amount uh, about clinical trials by having to read all of these proposals and, and evaluate their scientific merit before they would uh, get opened up uh, in our clinical trials office. And that, that was where my experience with clinical trials came from. You know, I read something recently, the, uh, the KU Cancer Center achieved a comprehensive designation from NCI. That's right. So what does that mean? So there's a, there's a number of different levels of designation uh, in the center's program from, from the NCI. There are basic centers, and right now I think there's just six of those, six or seven. They are uh, like, you know, they just do basic research. They have no clinical activities uh, what, whatsoever. So, like, for instance, the Cancer Center at MIT, the Koch Institute, is, is an example of, of a basic uh, center. And then there are the so-called clinical centers. Those tend to be cancer centers that are, uh, you know, a, a little uh, e- either newer in their designation or uh, centers that are uh, smaller than, than some of the ones that uh, received designation, you know, 40, uh, almost 50 years ago now. And then once you demonstrate that you have a strong depth and breadth of research uh, cancer research portfolio across many uh, different areas. You show that um, you understand your catchment area extremely well. So uh, you know what are the main drivers of cancer uh, in your region. You know what are the uh, highest incidence cancers causing the most uh, mortality. You design your research programs to, to meet those uh, issues. And then you also demonstrate the ability to, you know, move uh, new new ideas and research findings into new therapeutic drugs. Uh, and then finally, uh, you develop a comprehensive program uh, across all different types of, of clinical disciplines to uh, specifically address cancer. So, you know, physicians, nurses, uh, pharmacists. The, you know, the whole gamut of, of people and, and you establish the training programs that are specific for cancer. Uh, when you have all of those in place, then uh, you apply for, for comprehensive status. And so the, the guidelines are set up by the NCI now that um, uh, you, once you get designated as a clinical center, then you have to wait for 10 years uh, before you can apply for comprehensive. And so that's... Um, uh, that's what we just did is we, we applied and, and were successful in, in demonstrating to the NCI that we met all those, those four criteria for, for comprehensiveness. So was this something you were aiming for from the beginning to get the comprehensive designation? Yes, a- a- absolutely. And, um, y- you know, uh, we wanted to, you know, build the, you know, the best possible uh, cancer center and to, you know, play at the at the highest level, uh, essentially. So um, uh, that's been that has been the goal uh, all along. And one reason for that is that studies have shown that patients that are treated at NCI designated comprehensive cancer centers have, you know, one year after their diagnosis, about a twenty five percent better 
chance for survival than if they're treated elsewhere. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, that's, um, you know, obviously that's, that's critically important, but it reflects the fact that you have uh, highly specialized multidisciplinary teams that are, that are focused in specific areas. Like, you know, for instance, uh, our, our breast cancer docs and the breast cancer docs at any NCI designated comprehensive cancer center pretty much just treat breast cancer. You know, they're not, they don't have to keep up with what's going on in leukemia or colon cancer or all these other types of cancers. Their total focus and the focus for everybody on those teams, whether it's the surgeons, the medical oncologists, the radiation oncologists, everybody is uh, just treats breast cancer patients and they all come together and they work to design treatment programs that are specifically tailored towards individual cancer patients. And that, you know, that makes a huge difference. And, you know, also, you know, highly skilled, highly specialized uh, surgeons, you know, they're, they're at larger centers that have the volume to be able to support you know, their, their practice. So for instance, uh, if you do whipples, you know, you're not going to do that many whipples. If, if you're in a smaller community hospital, you might do, have the opportunity to do, you know, a handful a year. Well, you know, you're going to be a whole lot better whipple surgeon if you're doing two or three a week, as opposed to, you know, three to five a year. And so the outcomes uh, tend to be better. And the portfolio of clinical trials that you can have available for your patients uh, tends to be much larger at an NCI designated comprehensive cancer center. So, you know, we literally have hundreds of trials open. We put hundreds in, uh, you know, literally thousands of patients uh, on clinical trials of all sorts. Uh, and uh, and it's been shown that that patients on clinical trials, even when they get the standard therapy, uh, they don't even get the the new therapy. They tend to do better than patients not on a clinical trial, and that's because clinical trials are so regimented and there is there are very uh, rigorous rules around. You know, you have to get this specific regimen and you have to uh, have this uh, series of scans. And, and so it's, it's very clear that, you know, exactly what, uh, what those patients are going to get. And, and they turned out that uh, varying from the regimen is, is almost never good. Being on a trial uh, keeps you on, on that strict uh, regimen and, um, and patients tend to do better. So, you come to Kansas with the intention of starting this cancer center and, and you do that and all of the work and the years that it took to do that, you get the NCI designation. Now you've got the comprehensive designation. What does all of that mean to you personally? You know, it's uh, it, it's pretty satisfying because you can look back and see that you made a difference. And ultimately that's, you know, one of the most satisfying things and, and it's an extraordinarily 
you know, lucky position to, to be in. A lot of folks don't have the opportunity to be in a position to make a difference, uh, in, in their career. And, um, it's it's really a a blessing and a and a privilege to be in a situation and 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 make something like that happen. So I'm I consider myself extraordinarily lucky. Okay, I like that. One thing I wanted to get your your thoughts on this one. So I've read that uh, since we've been talking a lot about cancer, there's an expected future increase in cancer incidents because of the shutdown early in the COVID pandemic. I mean, cancer screening was kind of mostly stopped and even some cancer treatment was stopped. What, so what are your thoughts on that and the, on the effect of COVID on future cancer incidents? Well, uh, so I'm, I'm going to, uh, preface, preface my specific comments about COVID with the bigger picture, which is, um, you know, in the United States, our population is undergoing a significant demographic shift and, by uh, 2030, close to 25% or one out of every four people in the, in the United States is going to be 65 years of age or older. And that's a, that's a significant increase from where we are now, which is in the, in the teens. And, you know, cancer is primarily diagnosed um, in older individuals. And if you look at the incidence of, of cancer with age, it really dramatically increases after the age of 60. So obviously when you have a lot more people in your population, uh, in that age group, you're going to see a lot more cancer cases. And in fact, the uh, epidemiologists tell us that by 2030, we can expect to see almost 50% more cancer cases than are being diagnosed right now. So, so cancer is, is a huge problem that's coming down the pipeline. Uh-huh. And, you know, we don't have, we don't have the facilities. We don't have the manpower. We don't have the resources, uh, to deal with this. And so that's, that's one issue. Now, COVID has significantly complicated things because there's no reason to suggest that COVID is going to increase the natural, you know, people's natural predilection for getting cancer. Yeah. But what's going to happen is that because we're not doing the screening and, and we, and we really fell off doing screening, uh, during COVID that, um, you know, that, that doesn't mean that those cases don't exist. It just means that we haven't looked for them very well. And when we get back to a point of where people are having regular mammograms and colonoscopies and uh, skin cancer uh, screenings and all the other things that we should be doing, um, there's going to be a an increase in the number of cases and those case, those cancer cases are probably going to be at a higher stage than what they would have been. And so, uh, cancer death rates are probably going to be going up. And I know there's some work from the, from the NCI that suggested that, um, you know, e- even in the, uh, in the first year of the pandemic, 
I think their data showed that there was an expectation that there would be 10,000 excess deaths as a result of the diminished screening that had taken place just in the first year of the, of the pandemic. So it's a, it's wow. a huge problem. And, um, one which we're, we're sort of just now getting back to, but, you know, unfortunately people have kind of fallen out of the habit of, of getting their regular screening that they should be getting. And that's, that's going to come back to bite us. Um, you know, all, almost uh, no question. Okay, I see. That's that's kind kind of goes along with some of the things that I that I've read about this. Okay, uh, Dr. Jensen, this has been really interesting conversation. I, I appreciate uh, learning more about you and your career, and uh, talking about your your research as well. So, Dr. Roy Jensen, thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's it's been a pleasure uh, being on the uh, program and. Uh, you know, I have really enjoyed my uh, career in pathology, and, and frankly, I don't know what else I would have done if I had not been a pathologist. So um, it's um, and, and I think the opportunities are, are going to be even more exciting as we move forward, because in my opinion, you know, molecular diagnostics needs to be uh, coordinated by the pathologist. And uh, yeah. we should be responsible uh, for owning that and making sure that our training programs prepare uh, our residents and our fellows to assume uh, those responsibilities and those duties. Yep, I absolutely agree. Thank you, Dr. Jensen. All right. Thank you. Great big thanks to Dr. Roy Jensen. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. Like I've told people ever since then, you go through a career like a surfer, maybe on a wave, and you have good days and good days. And then one time you get up on top of a wave and you say, oh my God, this is the biggest wave. If I play my, if I do everything right, I can stay on the top of this wave. I mean, wave, I don't know how long, but if I don't know that I'm on top of that wave at the time, and then I crash, I'll say, oh, I was once on a great wave. If I'd only known, I said to myself, this is the time and the date where you know this is that way. And I said, I will drop everything um, to, to, to get this done and to be available and to get the time away. And that's what happened. We went around a listening tour for a, a year uh, as more financing was being assembled, talking to mostly medical oncologists and some key opinion leader pathologists who I respected. You can hear more from Dr. Jeffrey Ross about his work with HER2 and Foundation Medicine in episode 108. All right, so I really learned a lot from this episode. I didn't really know very much about the NCI designations and the different levels of that and all of the work that goes into attaining those levels. So that was really interesting to hear about the work that Dr. Jensen did attaining that. Also, I really enjoyed hearing about his work with the BRCA genes. I mean, it must have been very exciting to be right at the beginning of that research and to have made some of the initial discoveries about the BRCA genes. And, and finally, I appreciated his opinion on what he thinks the future of cancer incidence is going to be with regards to just the aging population and the effect that the COVID pandemic has had as well. And of course, the key role that pathology will continue to play in the fight against cancer. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. 
Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.